Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Amy B., whom I've gotten to know in one of my favorite AA meetings. Her fascinating story is one of early exposure to her father's alcoholism and her mother's active involvement in Al-Anon. But her parents also divorced when she was very young, and she and her sister were shuttled back and forth to fulfill the terms of the joint custody. Like many adolescents of divorced parents, Amy sought relief and release through the alcohol and marijuana she started using in the eighth grade. The habitual use of alcohol carried her through a colorful journey until she briefly tried AA in her early 20s to ease her troubles. Unfortunately, she saw mostly differences and only a few similarities in the infrequent meetings she attended. Deciding she could handle it herself, she spent the next couple of decades up and down in her addictions while raising four children and dealing with her husband's escalating alcoholism. By the time she hit the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, Amy's life had been turned upside down. A lengthy and difficult divorce in the early days of her AA membership nearly took her out. Had it not been for the AA women who surrounded her with tough love and constant support, Amy likely would not have made it. She immersed herself in the steps and service work, sufficient to gird her against the continuing allure of her previously glamorous yet alcoholic lifestyle. Listening to Amy's story, it's clear that she is a woman who takes her sobriety and spirituality seriously. She imparts her hard-won wisdom to other women who reach out for help, and she can be seen at meetings making sure everyone feels welcome. Amy was quick to agree to my invitation to share her story, which we recorded directly after a meeting that we both attend. Because she chaired that meeting, her demonstration of service to her group was top of mind and a great starting point for the interview. Please enjoy listening to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews as you soak up the words of active recovery gleaned from my friend and AA sister, Amy B. Hi, I'm Amy, alcoholic. Hi, Amy. So glad that you could do this interview today. And what was really special about it is that you and I just came out of a meeting mm -hmm. that you were chairing, and you're chairing for the month of August. And I thought, that's terrific because you've got, what, four years? Almost. Almost four. Yeah, what's, what's October 13th. Of so I'll have 2018. October 13th mm -hmm. of 2018, so almost four years. Mm -hmm. So almost four years and you're chairing a meeting, mm -hmm. which is terrific service work for anybody who's listening, thinking, how can I get more involved? What has service work meant to you during your period of sobriety? You know, each time that I have done service, I look at it in a different way from when I first started. So the meeting I just we just came out of, um, for me, it was a really intimidating meeting to me still, even at four years. I mean, when you come in here and you have a lot of shame and guilt and no self-esteem, and now all of a sudden you're supposed to sit in front of a room and <laughs> talk, I could not even, I, when I first got sober, when I would speak, I'd go to the bathroom and literally feel sick. That's how bad it was. My anxiety, my fear of speaking, my fear of telling where I came from, the truth, going through 
a lot of things in my life, especially in it, all the secrets coming up. I mean, it's hard. Sober for me, I will always say this, getting sober to me is not easy. It's definitely something, it's hard for me. And it, I tell newcomers, I mean, you know, when you work it, it works. Yeah. But there were, I think when people apologize for crying at the first meeting, I'm like, <laughs> I cried the first year. <laughs> I yeah. couldn't even talk. I don't think anybody in the meeting today, and I didn't sense anything but a really smooth chairmanship of today's meeting. No, it's taken, I actually walking through the hallway, coming to the chair this meeting, I have to do breath work just to breathe. But that's one reason that I, when people ask me to chair, first of all, I think it's a gift mm -hmm. or to lead a meeting. And if it works out, why not? It's giving back. We are told to keep what we have, we have to give what we have. And one of the best ways to do that, especially with regard to meetings, one of the things I like the most about chairing a meeting or suggesting to the men who I sponsor to chair is that there's a ready-made script in front of you. So if you just stick to the script and do nothing but read what's in the script, you really don't have to extemporize too much. And so for someone who might be a little nervous or unsure, I think service work as chairperson of a meeting for a particular period of time is really, really good to do. The other cool thing you did today, asking your sponsor to lead the meeting was brilliant. I've known Judy for 33 years now in the program. Can you speak to the importance of sponsorship for you? Um, for me, I actually, Judy's my third sponsor is she in really? four years. Um, when you first come in, and one thing I really try to do is um, I realized I was in so much fear, you know, just full of fear. Mm -hmm. And you hear about sponsors, right? And everybody's going, what is this? Okay, do this. And so my first one, I just asked anybody. I actually had somebody pick her out for me, my first one, at a women's meeting that I was attending. And somebody picked her out, and I thought, okay, I'll have her. Sure. I respect this lady 100%, has long-term sobriety, has mm -hmm. a lot of what I want, some things, but it was just very difficult on because you realize, well, you're still coming out of a fog so early on. You know, you're every day, I even think it now, I'm still learning things. But sponsorship, so I had her, didn't work. The second one was great. Each one of them taught me something. Each one of them taught me something, mm -hmm. but as I, was growing, I was like, okay, I really want what somebody has. I need to know that she can teach me. And I think I've said this in the meeting. I went early on to a uh, step study and I went and she was doing it and teaching it. And I just was like, I got her way of teaching. And I listened to her for a while. And I knew the other ones, I was like, they were working, but they had a lot going on in their life. And oh, I right. needed a little more. Mm -hmm. And so I was ready to really work through some things and mm. go. And so she's my third sponsor. And when I start to doubt it, mm -hmm. because sometimes you can think, oh, do I want this or do I want that? I just said, my little, said, just stay put. And it has worked out when I tell you, phenomenal, mm -hmm. phenomenal. A sponsor is a mentor to me. We're not here to be friends because then if you cross that friend's boundary, sometimes mm -hmm. it's hard for you to look at yourself. You get feelings hurt, things happen. Um, you want to feel comfortable with them. You want to feel comfortable with your sponsor. And she told me early on, if you're afraid to call me, I'm not here to be your sponsor. <laughs> and so I knew, and I used to be afraid to call her, and I thought, why am I afraid? And then I started reaching out, and she has you reach out to her. 
I think that's important. When you went to Judy to be your third sponsor, you said, mm -hmm. did she have you rework the steps or did she take what you, what progress you had made in working of the steps to that point and then take you forward from there? No, I actually reworked them. I've done the steps over and over. I'm a believer in doing the steps. Um, I believe this is a design for living. Mm -hmm. I think we're here to work the steps and everything. Oh yeah. And I came in here with, you know, tons, 20 years of secrets mm. and shame. So I was like, by the time I got to Judy, <laughs> at least there was not so many pages long and I kind of got it. No, I reworked them. And I'm actually getting ready to start and look on just doing a little four step right now on some relationships with her that I'm looking at in my life. Now, does this mean pulling out the old fourth steps from the file or is this writing all new stuff? No, just writing new stuff so I can look a little deeper at what's going on because I think, well, I know where I want to be. And I, when things are appearing in front of you, something's going on. So this, for relationships that are important to me, mm -hmm. I'm having to go a little deeper because I'm seeing some things go. And so she said, let's do a little a four step on this and look and fifth and keep going. So, and I have a lot of strong people in my life in this program that call me on my stuff. Well, it sounds like it. In fact, I understand you go to the women's meeting. Right, so there's a women's meeting three days a week. Um, and I don't always, I'm now kind of find my little meetings that I go to, but it's mostly on Fridays if I attend that one. I have a certain group of meetings I go to during the week and two or three of them are men's meetings. I always like to ask the women that I interview, what is there about a women's only meeting that makes it special and different for you than let's say a mixed meeting? Um, I know the first time I told my story, it was a women's meeting and I felt very safe compared to the second time I told it in a mixed meeting. Because mm -hmm. it, it's a little scarier, you know, because you're being intimate, you're opening yourself up to everybody and so, it was so scary to me. It's still scary to me because then you're letting people in. And um, But women, I'll be honest, I can handle it now, one day a week, a women's meeting. Um, it sometimes can be too therapeutic. Mm -hmm. I want solution-based. I like meetings that are solution-based meetings so I can come out and I can go, ah, I got something. I don't want to come out and feel heavy, but I, I, I like my women's meeting. I don't know if we share anything. I think it can be a little more of if people are married or in a relationship. I think basically sure. that's what they share. They feel more comfortable doing that than in a mixed meeting. I don't think mixed meetings are told, you know, about your husbands. Or, I I've always felt in men's meetings that it wasn't that the topics were any different, but the level of energy and the knowing that if you share, you're not sharing to sound good to or you're not becoming too vulnerable for other people in the room, but there's just something about the sharing of men in men's meetings and women in women's meetings I think is very important. I always suggest to the men I sponsor that they work uh, at least one, if not more, men's meetings into their schedule because for a lot of us, and, and for me too, uh, being around other men sometimes is very intimidating. And one of the reasons why I drank was to fit in with other men. So that's a good way to kind of get through some of those some of those issues as well. Well, and I will tell you this. So we have, there's three of us litter mates. We're called the smoking nuns. <laughs> and um, we met in a women's meeting. And it's so funny because we look at that, where we came from. Uh -huh. 
and we only went to women's meetings early on. Yeah, we were so, we loved the women's meetings. And now we go about, like I said, once a week. It's just, we needed to start there. We felt safe there. We felt comfortable there. We became friends. Mm -hmm. So I think women's meetings, a lot of people feel safe sometimes early on. What was it like for you going to a mixed meeting after you'd gone to so many women's meetings together? What did that feel like? And what was the difference in feeling? The feeling was that the mixed meeting scared me. I mean, to speak and to open yourself up in front of men, are you like, oh no, because I can even hardly talk in front of women. And then I'd go to a mixed meeting mm-hmm. and um, it was so different to speak. Even the meeting we just came out of, like I said, I still get nervous. Now I don't get as nervous. Um, the nuns and I, we were laughing. We were in Galveston a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. We laughed so hard because we said, remember when we came in, we'd all look at each other and go, how did we sound? <laughs> and we'd text each other in these meetings. Did we sound okay? Did we sound, what did you think? And all we talked about was what we talked about, like what, how we sounded. <laughs> and we were so concerned and now we laugh because you can look where we've grown in four years and no, we're not asking that anymore. We laugh, we're like, who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares. And it has nothing to do with that. We're here to be of service mm-hmm. and you know, help others. And as long as we're helping one person in the room, we're not here to worry about how good we sound. You know, And I've learned the longer I stay sober, you can sound really good in an AA meeting. Really, you're just some great speakers. <laughs> My sponsor helped me by going to meetings with him. He was able to offer me some constructive feedback. And in my early years of sobriety, there was one meeting in particular that we would go to. It had a lot of very seasoned AA people in it. Man, It was a men's meeting. One of the things my sponsor noticed at some point was he said, you know, it seems like you're sharing on a very superficial level because when you've got three to five minutes to share in a meeting, you could share about anything. You could talk about Bill Wilson, you could talk about your last week, how you're feeling right now, blah, blah, blah. He said, but what's clear to me, Howard, is that it's not coming out of the heart, it's coming out of your head. And if you don't start sharing from the heart, then sharing from the head is not gonna be sufficient for you to have that spiritual awakening by the time we get to step 12. And that was a pivotal revelation to me about the importance of sharing from the heart. When you share in meetings, what does it feel like to you? Or do you feel like you're always sharing from the heart or is it from the head or a mixture? I think early on, I always might've tried to get into my head too much, Yeah. but absolutely do I come from the heart. Um, I believe I just ask God to speak through me hmm. and whatever comes out and whoever I'm here to help, have it be done. Uh, that's all I'm here. And I might never know who I helped, but I actually led a meeting last night and somebody I found out from two years, which was a compliment. Mm-hmm. He said, I remember when you shared, when you would talk, you would get sick and go to the bathroom. And he goes, I'm so happy you said that <laughs> because I did the same thing. And then I had another guy that we just gave a chip to today. Uh-huh. And I was there at his first meeting and I loved to watch him grow. And we're actually friends and he said, yeah, I was shaking and he couldn't talk. And I said, we've all been there, it's okay, it's okay. And I go, I still shake. And I remember going to a meeting and somebody had 36 years and one of his good friends in the back of the meeting was like, you know, he just came off of a plane and was going and he was all over the place. And I said, you make us feel better because at 36 years, you can still have days like that. Yeah, it's so important for people with time in the program 
to share their day-to-day -day struggles and how sobriety and the program helps them navigate their lives. Right, and one thing I'll go back on saying talking from the heart, I think you, if you don't talk from your heart center and always from your head, how are you healing this heart center? I don't understand that, you know, so I want to heal my heart center. And so if I don't talk, and then you're not talking truth. Yeah. So if you're only coming from your head, how are you not talking truth if you're coming from your heart? So it is very important. And if you, the longer you stay sober, you start to realize the ones that are from the heart yeah. and the ones because you connect. And we all, we are humans. We are here to connect through the heart. Not And so I think that's the connection you can always feel when you meet somebody. Yeah, what an extraordinary realization you have with that statement. Uh, I think thanks. that's really important. You, you've got four years. Had you ever tried getting sober before? Or you ever tried AA before? I did. Tell me about that. So I came in early on to AA. My mother, therapist, um, who I'm not, I haven't been a fan of. Right, okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was, what, 20, 19, 20? And she's, my mother wanted, was always in Al-Anon. I remember growing up in Al-Anon and going, you know, as little girls sitting in the hallway doing our homework, at going to Al-Anon meetings. Um, but that's, I remember that early on. And then my father was an alcoholic and drank heavily. Mm. So when she asked me to go to an AA meeting at 19 or 20, I'm thinking, I only know of an alcoholic by my father, an example who started drinking by noon every day. I'm 19 years old, 20. We're supposed to be drinking here and having fun right at this age. You're supposed to be going out. That's all I knew how to do. So she asked me to go to an AA meeting mm -hmm. and I said I'd go. And I went with a good girlfriend of mine that was in my life and because um, she was in AA. Hmm. And I decided to go to the meeting on Saturday night, which was a really hip meeting. <laughs> The hot meeting on Saturday night before they tore down the building. So I tried it. And the first meeting I walked into, I was like, God, these are this. I was intimidated, but I'm looking at the men, right? I'm thinking, oh, my God, because I, I didn't think. But I ended up sitting next to a guy that just I was so nervous because I thought this is the cutest guy in the room. I wasn't expecting to sit next to him. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh, there are some cute guys in AA. So I didn't go there to get sober. But I said I'd try it because I didn't think I was an alcoholic at 19 and 20. I didn't see it. I was like, I didn't drink like my father. Are mm -hmm. you kidding me? I'm not under the bridge, you know, holding a beer. And I think that's what people I know. I thought that was an alcoholic. You know, everybody has a story on how we get here. Everybody. And it's always to look for the things that we have. Yeah. You know, the similarities, not the differences. So how did you see your dad when you were growing up? Your mom going to Al-Anon, I guess my presumption is somewhere along the way he kept on drinking, but she went for help for herself and the family. They were divorced. My father actually died an act active alcoholic. I mean, we remember him picking us up and, you know, he had to pull over to get his beer. We remember flying with him, ordering his drinks, smoking in the back of the plane. And my mother always said, your dad's an alcoholic. Well, we just thought that meant you just, you start drinking at noon. <laughs> you know? yeah. So that's what we thought an alcoholic was. Yeah. So then when I went to an AA meeting, I'm thinking, I'm not an alcoholic. All I looked for was one of my good friends. Yeah. And there were some cute guys at 20 years old. So I went to a few AA meetings, but I actually started dating a guy in the program mm -hmm. right away. And that kept me sober, kept me sober. 
um, was not convinced I was an alcoholic, but we, you know, this was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's very different. Mm -hmm. And we dated and I actually ended up having a child with him mm -hmm. and he has passed away mm -hmm. and he started using again and passed away. How long ago was that? Probably about 10 years ago, he passed away. He was working and uh, came home and was shooting cocaine in a vein and hit the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And he was in and out of this program, very successful, very handsome. And we had a great time at the beginning. And we have a wonderful child now. Yeah. And our story is phenomenal. I mean, so I have many blessings. It's really tragic, though, isn't it? It was. I remember he was not in my life when he passed. He wasn't? No, he was not in my life. He was in and out of his life um, because of his drinking. Were you divorced at the time? We never married. Never married, okay. Never married. Yeah, so he's in and out of the addiction. Mm -hmm. At what point did you turn from being a partner in his uh, using to him going his own way? Oh, early on. But now that I look back, I mean, you know, this is 25 years ago. Everything I, it's such a gift, everything I've been through. And like, I look at it as such a gift. I wouldn't be who I am. Yeah. Um, my son has, uh, he was in and out of his life, ended up eventually terminating his rights. Mm -hmm. And he was an only child from England and came from a really awesome family and just, and I can say that today, that it's a good family, but the, his grandmother had nothing to do with them. And once he passed away, they have reconnected and they traveled the world together. Oh, how great. He and his grandmother? Yes, at eight years old. So he gets a relationship by him, Pat, well, he passed. Right. He's the only heir left to the family. When he was eight years old, uh, he got to connect and has been with her and they have a wonderful relationship. And how old is he today? He is 25, almost 26, and he's awesome. Now, let me ask you something. Based on the fact that you're sober now, you've been in the mm -hmm. program now, I assume you had to deal with everything that was going on with his using and uh, his ultimate demise without going to AA, without support of the program. How did you get through that period? One of my best friends who was in the program stayed with me. I stayed sober for a few years, did not work the program when I was pregnant. I didn't drink when I was pregnant. I never, that wasn't my thing. I didn't drink or use during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I stayed sober for two years. Mm. Never went to meetings, didn't work the program. You know, when you come in and you're kind of thinking you're 19, 20 years old. I mean, I'm actually looking at my 21 year old today that has three weeks sober. Three weeks? Three weeks. Wow, congratulations yeah. on that. And I have four sons, 29, 25, 21, and almost 20. And his coach, um, who is a big university, he plays college ball and has been in the help of getting him and working and just helping the teammates and the recovery. How does it feel to be a sober mom at almost four years? Incredible. Incredible. Does it make you look back and wish that you had come in sooner than you did? You know what? I can't say I wish I came in sooner because I was not ready for when I came in. One, I was just leading a meeting last night on the promises. You come to not to regret the past. And I'm truly there because I wouldn't be who I am. And I have such a great story. Why would I change that? I'm just so grateful I'm alive. Yeah, it's like all roads lead to where we are anyway. Right. And my son now, I get to watch him and I'm like, God, if you can stay sober, what a light. 
Now, going back to your own childhood when you were growing up, do you remember when you first had an experience with alcohol that sticks out in your mind as being something that you would look at and say, yeah, I want to do that again, or I never want to do that again? I remember early on being in the back um, with my cousins, because we always would drink. My mother never had alcohol in the house. And I always felt like, this is so weird, okay? Because most people we knew always had alcohol. Nobody mm-hmm. really wanted to come to our house when we started to get into alcohol <laughs> high school because we never had alcohol. Yeah, my mother was real strict on that. But I remember early on going on a vacation with my dad or going home with my cousins, and there was a beer in the back. And I remember we were like, oh, let's drink this beer. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that when I started to look into my sobriety where I wanted to start changing the way I felt on it early on was in the back of my house. My mom was always gone. Mm-hmm. She worked and my sister and I had to raise herself. And I remember somebody bringing marijuana pot. And I thought, hmm, I was ready to go for it. <laughs> Yeah. And most of my friends were all hippie pot smokers. And how old were you? I remember trying pot for the first time in the eighth grade. Yeah. So that 13, 14-year-old range, that seems to be the, the most popular time for people to start, doesn't it? Yes. I can actually look back, but now alcoholism is a progressive disease. Right. So for me, you had fun. Uh, how old were you when your parents divorced? Oh, I was two years old early on. Okay, so you don't, you wouldn't have remembered your dad's active alcoholism in the house, or, or were you around it at all when he was drunk? Oh my God, we're around it every time he came to pick us up. So he picked you up, what, every other week? Or that every other weekend. He was in and out of our lives, so any time that my mother would take him back to court for child support, uh-huh. um, he was successful. Anytime my mother would take him back to court, we, he would come be in our life for a little while. And then he'd leave again. He'd stop. And it, he was in and out. Mm-hmm. But we remember going to my dad's. And my sister and I just now were talking about this. We didn't even, because he just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And we were like, God, we couldn't even eat. I was like, he would never let us eat till 10 or 11 o'clock because he loved to cook. Hmm. And then we couldn't even go snack. We had to sit there and wait because he had to be so drunk and pass out almost. And then he would eat because he wanted to make sure he had a good buzz and was drinking. Mm-hmm. And then we, so we always remember him and we remember him losing jobs mm-hmm. and going down from big houses to all of a sudden slowly lo- fancy cars and then slowly he'd start to lose it all. Uh, are you the older of the two? No, I'm the youngest. Okay, so you've got one sister? 15 months apart. 15 months apart. So let me ask, when you were a kid and you were being shuffled back and forth and you're going to your dad's every other week, did you and your sister get together and attribute what was going on with your dad to alcoholism or was it just dad's crazy behavior? Did you put two and two together? At at what point did you and your sister realize that your dad was truly an alcoholic? Well, we definitely didn't. We knew he drank. We knew my mother what alcoholism was. But I don't think we ever we just knew dad drank a lot and his whole family loved a party. Mm-hmm. And my mother would always say, your dad's an alcoholic. And we remember Al-Anon. But no, us putting it together, we did not talk about things. Even though my mother was an Al-Anon, there was lots of secrets and things were not talked about in our family. Yeah, I get that. Those family secrets are killers, aren't they? Oh, you don't even talk, period. We never talked about anything. It, it makes it especially tough when you're a kid and you're hearing the kind of message that you were getting from your mom about your dad being an alcoholic. For a lot of people, 
that's a judgment based on the way they're acting, not a judgment based on the fact that you know they have a disease. Right. Uh, did you ever get a sense that the alcoholism that your dad had was a disease or was it just a moral or behavioral thing with him? Um, we didn't look at it. We're talking when we, I was 25, probably, starting in the rooms. We never put it together. We just knew dad, even though my mom said it, but for my sister and I, if I'm understanding for us to connect on our own, not what our mother told us, what we came to our own conclusion. So my mother always said he was an alcoholic, but you know, we also knew parents that drank. Yeah. And we thought my mom was off her rocker half of the time. To come to our own conclusion, though, my sister and I, that our father was an alcoholic, we didn't really do that till we were about 20, because I came in the rooms and I started to think that's when I was kind of opened up to alcoholism. Yeah, so at 20, you, you finally got that realization, mm -hmm. uh, what was really going on with your dad. The realization of it didn't necessarily influence your desire to want to drink and use. No, I didn't want to drink beer like he did. <laughs> okay. Okay? My dad was a beer drinker and would stop and get his 12 pack okay, uh -huh. on his way. So when I was introduced to alcoholism, when I relapsed and I at 22, 23 years old, 24, when I, I remember I was sober two years, two or three, and I'm not great at all these numbers. And then my son is 25, 26. So um, I was sober two years and went out for 21. Mm. But when I went and they, I now get it when they say, just don't have the first drink, right? Or the, your first drink. Mm -hmm. And I remember I finally worked my way, okay? I was sober. I had, uh, my best friend was in the program. I started doing things, working my way. I've always been in sales. Mm -hmm. I was working more up the ladder, supporting two children at the time, a single mom. I got a job at the time. I just mm -hmm. tried out for Baywatch in front of a producer. Remember, Baywatch was the big hit thing. And I was sober at this point. Uh -huh. And my girlfriends that were in the program were like, Amy, you gotta go, take <laughs> off of work. We got you in front of the producers, uh, wear this. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, I can't take off of work, but this I'm being responsible, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, you're going, okay? So I went and I get an audition in front of the producers. And right after I did that and I'm working, I'm starting getting my confidence, I'm staying sober, sure. raising this baby, having to work. I get a phone call right after Baywatch and um, they go, we have another interview for you. Get over here. The guy wants to meet you. He loves Pamela Anderson. And mm -hmm. he knew she just tried out. I remember at the running to TJ Maxx and picking up a top that now was hideous for nine ninety nine because <laughs> I was already in Baywatch stuff. So I was like, oh, my God. And they're like, get over here. And I was like, OK, here I go. And I went to an oil company and um, he hired me on the spot. I ended up making more money than I ever had. He paid insurance for my children. It was just phenomenal job. Working for an oil company. An oil company. So I went from. The, but the point is, I went to Baywatch. Right. I was sober. Right. I started to climb. My success was coming back with work. I was doing, you know, my jobs yeah. uh -huh. and feeling okay. But I just. I wasn't in touch with who I was, though. You know, I'm raising two children, but I, and I wasn't going to meetings. But I was sober. And I had sober people around me. And AA was much different, <laughs> I feel like. But anyway, right after I got done with Baywatch, they said, get over here, my sober friends. We have a job. This guy wants to meet you. And he hired me on the spot. So I never got a phone call back from Baywatch. But that is my highlight that I did try out in front of it, the producers. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you enjoy listening to this show, please take a moment at the end to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast app you use. That will help others find us. And check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. Available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also a Kindle book if you'd like to read along with the audio. And we're back. So you kind of preempted getting into Baywatch by going to work for the oil company. And that's when my whole world, I remember drinking for the first time again. That's when I drank. I was very good in hospitality. And so he wanted me at the front with all these oil men. But I walked up there and I remember this guy, I started to get, was around a whole world where I didn't come from. I mean, we were lucky to get a bag of Cheetos for dinner, okay? Uh So all of a sudden you're into this glam light is my point. Okay, so you were sober when you got Mm -hmm. that job, but Mm -hmm. two weeks later you're drinking again. Mm -hmm. So being in the program, being sober, which I'm assuming was probably the case for you, with your two years plus Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. We have to believe certain things. We Mm -hmm. have to believe that AA is important for us to stay sober. Certain things that we do in the program are important for us to continue to do to stay sober. What of all of those things that you learned in the first couple of years were no longer true or had stopped being important to you such that it made it possible for you to take that drink at two weeks? I stopped going to meetings. I I was dishonest. What did that look like? Well, because I wasn't going to meetings mm-hmm. and I was kind of playing with this. I got real involved with this limelight and the oil business. And so when my girlfriends who got me the job in the program that are still in the program, the one is still my best friend. Uh-huh. She has, I think, what, 32 years. So when I went to this thing, I was all of a sudden like around bottles of champagne and Rolls Royces uh-huh. and parties. And like I said, I didn't come from any of this. I'm just this working mom. And But I think the dishonesty, because I remember when I got asked out first by an oil man who I ended up marrying, Uh I remember going to my friend that's in the program, and I lied to her about drinking. And this is my best friend. I immediately went on a date with this guy who was now my ex-husband, but Uh I was drank with him for 20 years. And the minute I took that first drink with him out at a restaurant, having a bottle of Cristal and champagne come over to my table. And I had him pick me up from my best friend's house who was sober. And I went home lying that night and I drank that night. Hmm. And that's when it started. And so then you're off to the races. Off to the races. Must have been a pretty glamorous lifestyle though in the beginning for you. Glamorous? I'm so, I mean, I cannot, I always am like, can I just go back sober now? (laughs) (laughs) Can I just go to this life? I've been to movie stars houses. I have been around the richest of the rich. I'm talking people you could never imagine. Just huge. And so he gave me a life and I married to be taken care of. And we drank from the day we started that one drink. I started to lose my values, my truth, my self-esteem, all of it to the very bottom. Thank God it wasn't to death for 20 years. He is now, he has now completely paralyzed um, this guy from alcoholism and stress and So you never know where it's gonna take you, but... uh, You did that for 20 years until you split with him? I split with him when I got sober. When you got sober, so that was four years, almost four years Mm -hmm. ago. And that was necessary for you to do to get sober and stay sober? Actually, the divorce started before I got sober. 
And I sat in the back of a women's meeting mm -hmm. for about two or three weeks going to AA meetings. And I never could pick up a desire chip. I would just go to this noon one women's meeting. And I said, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. Again, I'm just thinking, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. Anyway, she looked at me and she said, if you're not an alcoholic, leave, go drink some more. And I went, the minute I got the okay, I ran to a boozy and I drank some more. Mm. And I remember 24 hours later, I said, I don't want this anymore. And I remember my ex-husband at the time, I was he was a heavier drinker, big drinker, more than I was. And so I was like, he's an alcoholic. I mean, we just drank together. I just drank fine wine. I mean, uh -huh. this isn't an alcoholic, right? I've been around movie all this life. And um, I remember we got, it started to get real crazy in the divorce and both of us drinking. My mother confronted me and not him, which pissed me off. Yeah, I'll bet. Oh, pissed me off. As your mom or as an Al-Anon or both? Just my mother, I mean, <laughs> God. We, I get it. I my get mother, it. <laughs> which, but she writes me this letter, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. And she, long story, she ends up going to my husband and I'm thinking, you go to my husband, who is an alcoholic, I thought, and we drank for 20 years, but you confront me and not confront him. <laughs> I was pretty angry. The fighting was so extreme with the drinking, I said, I have to stop. I didn't think he would stop. Mm -hmm. And I knew that nothing good was going to come out of this. I tried to drink and see if I could get honest, and I couldn't. I couldn't get honest. Did all of the goodies and all of the money and all the uh, glamorous lifestyle, did that take the place of other things that are normally within a marriage or uh, did they get in the way? The drinking just came along with the lifestyle. It came along. It was part of the lifestyle. You know, if we went to big people's house, I remember being served Cristal for breakfast. I mean, you know, in the Hamptons, we drank champagne for breakfast. That's glamorous. Yeah, it was very. And um, fine wines, and the more you're around it, that's what you want, you expect in some ways. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I couldn't, I had to put the alcohol down to get honest. Like the alcohol, trying to control it mm -hmm. and go through a divorce, trying to get rid of this, the fantasy there's mm. such a fantasy about it. Did you feel like you might lose all of that if you got sober? Oh, I did. You did? Oh, I did. It was, I found out when I got sober, that's what I'm talking about. Truth had to come out. 20 years of secret. And I found out um, we were living way over the means and there was a lot of money being, we were not, there's a lot of dishonesty in the business. And getting myself off of food stamps, when I got sober and I thought my house was going to be all taken from me, and everything was going to be taken, mm. and I found out this was a dishonest life I was living, I thought I was going back under to go to shelters. That's where the fear was so severe, because if I got sober and I'm now getting honest, look where I'm going. Or I could stay with this life and keep drinking, and I would have been dead. Mm -hmm. I would have been in a bad, depressed, psychiatric home. Well, it took him down, didn't it? It took him down. You were doing mm -hmm. drugs as well at the no, time? No, no. Just no. alcohol? We, I was only alcohol. So at what point did the alcohol start to uh, deteriorate his physical being? You know, you get sober early on. And, you know, I had to live. I remember him when our divorce was over. Mm -hmm. I had a Chanel suit, my Chanel, mm -hmm. all my stuff on. And they just said right after that mediation, they're like, you just go to a meeting. 
and I was in this, you know, and I'm thinking I'm already losing everything. I don't know anything. But I remember early on, he invited me to go to a fancy restaurant after we finalized our divorce. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I have to go to the club or I can go drink really nice champagne. (laughs) What a choice. (laughs) What a choice, right? And he called me, my ex-husband, come drink with us. We, you know, just come out and drink. You're, come on, Amy, I want you back. You know, he wanted me. And I decided to go. The only meeting, it was a Wednesday night, I knew at 6.30, and I was a wreck. And I ran over to that meeting, and I'll never forget it. I just thought, I remember going, what am I doing here? Look at my (laughs) life. I could be having champagne and steak. (laughs) And something just, I just did what I was told, Howard. It was like, you just keep showing up, darling. We have you. What was there about that meeting that that touched you that evening that made you realize you were home at last? I didn't know if I thought I was home. I didn't think I was home, but I knew to get to a meeting, not a bar. Everybody told me, no matter what, early on, don't drink. No matter what, don't drink. So you get this at the point at which... I could have drank by that point. You could have drank. Mm-hmm. You were already divorced at that point, right? Mm-hmm. No, we were just finished, finalized it. Just finalizing. You have this choice. You choose AA. And so what was the next thing you did after that? What did I do? I did what I was told. I did everything. Were you back in touch with a girlfriend who had been your AA friend? No, I was not back in touch with her completely, but we have been in and out of each other's life. And I started doing the AA. I knew I wanted this. The more I came to meetings, I was like, I held on what I talked about, these promises. I remember hearing these promises, mm-hmm. and I remember hearing stories mm-hmm. in this room. And I thought, God, if you just keep me alive, just keep me alive. I can do this. And everybody would go, you're okay. Just keep coming back. You're going to be okay. And I'm thinking. (laughs) When did you get that sense that you would be okay? Was it like a turning point, a moment of clarity, a God moment? What what did that look like for you? Um, I don't know if I ever until this day have a picture of what it looks like. Mm. All I know is you better keep it pretty simple. And that meant kept going back hang around with the winners, Mm -hmm. hang out with people like I shared today in the meeting that have something you want, Um, watch their feet, I was told early on, in their mouth, see if they match up. Um, But I just remember the willingness I had. Hmm. My girlfriend and I, the nuns, we talked about, we would be in that fetal position on the floor crying from, because I should have been in treatment. I couldn't afford treatment. I should have gone to treatment, but I wasn't going to go from coming to this lifestyle to, no, I've been there before in my life and I don't have anything, you know, working with the poor, being with that, but I wasn't going to go to treatment center. And I let everybody hold me up in these rooms. When I was old school, like the story, I was old school. I mean, I had people around holding me in fetal position, crying on the bathroom floor because the feeling were so overwhelming and the fear of drinking for 20 years and keeping secrets were so overwhelming. So did you feel that you needed to go to treatment but just couldn't afford or... Were you convinced that if you if you did everything that you needed to do with AA that you could get by without going to treatment? Um, my mom, when she wrote the letter, wanted to do an intervention in me to go to treatment, but I wasn't going to go where my mom wanted me to go. So when I finally quietly decided to walk into an AA meeting mm-hmm. and do it on my own, I wasn't going to do it my mother's way because I already had so much anger and resentment toward my mother. Mm-hmm that I wasn't going to do it her way. And I let the women and the men, um, there was an 
who's like been a father figure in my life who has 35 years sober where I would not be without that guy. I mean, I call his, his name's Nolan. He has like 35 years. And I told him I'm going to write a book, Walking with Nolan. And he literally walked and probably prayed the entire time with me every day, just helping me or would do anything. God knew he needed a strong man to hold me up. Yeah. And he is strong. And most people can't handle him because he calls me out. I mean, I just got mad at him yesterday. I walk once a week with him now. I do anything in the world for him. Uh, told him if I, when I get remarried again, he will be the one to walk me down. He, I told him he can't go anywhere soon <laughs> because he has held me up. And honestly, when I told him, I've told him to fuck off. I've told him you don't know what you're talking about. And he'd look at me and go, mm-hmm. Yeah. Called me on stuff to this day. I go, call me on it. He said, your side of the street. Yeah. So as a really, really good friend and mentor in the program, he's been a pivotal part of your sobriety. Absolutely. I think everybody needs at least one person like that in their life, if not more. Uh, this group of nuns that you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's very cool that you call yourselves the smoking nuns. Well, we have the smoking because our first year of sobriety, if you really want to know, we smoked cigarettes, <laughs> went to meetings. Uh, what did they say? And we had sobriety and no sex. So we're called the smoking nuns because <laughs> all we did. And now I tell we're the smoking hot nuns. <laughs> it says I'll have to look it up for you when we're do- It's something like, you know, those three things, two things. And that's so great. that's exactly what we did. What a great way to put the don't get into a relationship rule uh, into perspective is to call yourself a nun. And we're still together and we laugh. And when we tell people we do every day, we kind of chat. We're there for each other. We're all different. We've come in the rooms different. Our sobriety, all of us each have a different story, Mm -hmm. but we all get each other. Isn't that great? (laughs) Because we're alcoholics. So we know we go our alcoholic mind. Here we go. Yeah, and at some point, the alcoholic similarities and what we have in common as alcoholic, Mm -hmm. if we stay together with those people long enough, it kind of morphs into a deeper relationship, a loving relationship Mm -hmm. beyond just the fact that we're all not drinking, that we really do care about all the other things in the other person's life. Part of the program, it's taught me how to be a friend. I'll bet. Like, God, we're all here and we're all different and we're all going through different things, but we all love each other and we all want to be there for each other. And I came in this program, I told myself, I said, I came into here to have a life because even though I had this glamorous life, that wasn't a life to me. It was just miserable. It was so fake. Nothing was real and all this. And I thought, I'm coming to be who I'm really here to be. You know, and so I always said, I came in to have a life. We do everything. We go to restaurants. We go to college football games. We go to NFL games. We travel. We take trips. So we do everything together. Do they all have about the same amount of sobriety Mm -hmm. as you do? Okay. So you're you're on this journey together with people who've been around the program as as long as you have. Mm -hmm. Sounds to me like this is a great support group. How has the program in the time that you've been in it, can you think of any experiences that you went through where the program was absolutely crucial to you being able to get through it? God, yes. Um, my divorce, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened early in your in your sobriety too, right? Right, very early. I mean, when I was telling you going through before, I, right before I got sober, so we were. It was a two year divorce, so I was right in the middle of it um, and trying to get sober. So that was number one, mm-hmm. and all. When I'm telling you secrets and all this coming up, then I had my father pass. The hard thing was, I think, uh, my job. Um, I didn't. I wasn't working. I, these are the good things. Let me talk about yeah. the things that I had to do because I am so transformed, and I'm going to continue to be, transform myself from the program because you work this program. It's saying growing up in public. I had to grow up. Honestly, whenever they say you stop drinking at that age or you start, you are. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. I. Had to get a job, um, $10 an hour. Went back from a glamorous life to getting a job for $10 an hour. Mm-hmm. I literally washed my face in Whole Foods every day and walked there to wash my face and get samples. So I gave up all that. Then I um, have not had a relationship with my mother. And the gift is now I just heard from her after four years. I received a letter from her that she wants to start building our relationship. Wow. Um, I get to see my son sober, who is a big starter college football player. Cool. I have put myself through school, real estate school, so I'm a realtor. I work at a big real estate company. I have learned how to pay my own bills. I never saw a checkbook for 20 years while Mm. I was married. I've had to learn how to manage money and pay my own bills. I've had to pay for my children now because my ex-husband helped support them and now he's completely empty with nothing. So I have the responsibility of that. Mm -hmm. I went through the fear of losing every single thing, thinking the IRS was gonna come take my house and put a lock on the door and rampage my house. And Mm -hmm. I was gonna go to shelter and look what I have today. I have more than you could ever imagine. And I held on to that. I remember one of my sponsors early on said, if you, there's somewhere in the big book, if you proceed, remarkable things will happen. And I remember holding on to that statement, remarkable things will happen. And I was like, I'm ready for some remarkable. But did I work? Yeah. Yeah. And have I worked this program? Yes. (laughs) Did you work with the expectation that remarkable things were going to happen? Or did you just nose to the grindstone and just power on and the remarkable things just were an outcome. I put my head, my head in this program. Right. I put everything I had. Nolan told me early on, anything you put above your sobriety, you'll lose. So I put nothing above my sobriety, it's, which is really your relationship with God. That's what I believe is your sobriety yeah. because this is a spiritual program. And so my relationship, there's nothing that's to come before that because when I'm here, this is where I'm centered and my foundation. Yeah. And so um, I have to keep this first. And even as I've started dating now, after four ye- three years, mm-hmm. I've allowed myself to start dating. Um, these meetings are first. My meetings are first in my life. My children know my meetings are first. Uh-huh. And that's how I work it. And it's the result of working this program that you will have all remarkable things happen. It's the result of working the 12, like at step nine, Mm -hmm. that you get to see all these things. So if you really work it and do it honestly, it works. (laughs) And and I love love the way you said that because that's exactly the way I believe, Mm -hmm. that if you do the work, the results will take care of themselves. They'll Mm -hmm. take care of themselves naturally. And the relationship with God just eases into your life and becomes a working part of your mm-hmm. life. Right. I wanted to ask you about your, your own spiritual awakening. At what point did you feel like 
you had hit step 12. At what point did you feel a spiritual awakening in the program? I felt a spiritual awakening the first time I did the steps. Uh huh. Um, I believe in that. I believe that a spiritual awakening is the aha moment of change. That's what it means. You're noticing something's different. Mm-hmm. So as long as you stay present, you're noticing. It doesn't mean you have to notice it at that minute, but there's something going on within you. And so I noticed it the first time I did the steps. Now, is it to the extreme that I noticed it today? Mm-hmm. No, I make a gratitude list daily oh, yeah. and I do. And I have for years, I actually started my gratitude list 20 years ago, but it's changed since sobriety. And how, how is it different today versus 20 years ago when you were doing it? It was more about the outside, the material. Uh-huh. Uh, and I thought this life and the gratitude of today is sitting here with you, sharing a meeting, seeing my cardinal that I love to look outside, butterflies around me. Mm-hmm. Friends, some days they're a little bigger, but I guess getting gratitude for these little things. I could pay my bills. I mean, yeah. I, some, it depends what day it is. Some days I can only find gratitude and... Um, like I said, I saw the butterfly, I could water my plants. I have water, I have my coffee. I find gratitude in making me the best cup of coffee every morning. I love coffee. And I do too, I, <laughs> I, I drink a pot a day. But right. uh, the fact that you're doing this on a daily basis just drives home the importance that you attach to that spiritual experience, that spiritual awakening. Yes, because you get to see it. And I think the more you recognize it, you, I, somebody, gratitude, somebody said this, it's abundance. GDB mm-hmm. is a big fan of gratitude. And oh, yeah. when I told her I did it, but she has me now write 12 things. There's something magical in the number 12, yeah. 12 disciples, 12 dozen. And so we are to write 12 things. And some days I get 12, but it's pretty easy to get 12 if you think about it through your day. Do you find yourself using the same things over and over again, or do you try and find something new every day? Oh, I try to find whatever the gift is for that. So it could be the cardinal or the butterfly outside It could be the, the cardinal and it could be a phone call. It could be helping somebody. Mm. It can mm-hmm. be anything. You have to look, it comes from within. Everything is, I believe, is from within. When you think about your own spirituality, what is your favorite prayer? Well, it depends, Howard, on what day it is. (laughs) Some days it's God grant me the the serenity to accept the things I cannot change Change. 500 times and I need to repeat, I cannot change. Yeah, yeah. Um, But mostly it's the Our Father. Yeah. I believe, I think it sums everything up together. Um, And that kind of, I enjoyed that when I came in here, I was raised Catholic but I have a very different faith built on my own God now, not this punishing strict God. I know that wants to punish me and I'm to sit in mass and go to confession all day long. And he's going to love you no matter what. He's going to love me and he does love me. Yeah. And he does love me and he is with me. When you think about your own spirituality today, we were talking about the prayer. So when you sum it up, the Our Father, I think it sums it up in everything. Our Father, and I believe he's my father. I didn't have a father. You know, he was in and out. So this is my Mm -hmm. father. And as you go through your daily bread, somebody, a priest said this to me about a few months ago, your daily bread can be anything. Anything. Your daily bread is 
when somebody opens the door for you and your hands are full, you know, uh, your daily bread is you doing that, taking some food to a sick person, receiving, mm-hmm. all that's the daily bread. Letting somebody in traffic. Traffic, yeah. Yeah. that's the daily yeah. bread. Yeah. Uh, forgiving others mm-hmm. as we wanna be forgiven. Yeah. So I think, I think it's the Our Father for me. It's just kind of sums up where I need to be. Yeah, that's really beautiful that that would be your favorite prayer because to me, the Our Father prayer, and of course I'm Jewish, mm-hmm. and so before I came into AA, I always thought, well, that's a strictly Christian prayer mm-hmm. and everything, but I've, I've said it ever since I first came in. But the cool thing about the Our Father prayer is that it is evidence most days that you've been in a meeting. Mm-hmm. I agree. The likelihood of me saying that prayer daily is probably because I'm in a meeting daily, and that's why I'm all... Right. I might say it in the morning, I might say it some other time during the day, but it's valid evidence that I have been in a meeting. I love it. When it's said at the meeting, like I said, at yeah. least I know I'm in prayer. There's something about that. And it did. I enjoyed that part of AA. But yeah. I, as I've grown, my prayer life has grown, my sobriety. I want to just ask you, and I've asked this of, of my guests, if you could choose, knowing what you know now, if you could choose to go back and talk to the Amy B at any part of your life with either advice, support, or whatever, which Amy would you go back to and what would you say? I would go back to the little girl that Mm -hmm. I was, Mm -hmm. a young girl, probably about five years old, Mm -hmm. four even. And I would go back and tell her that you are so loved. And I would tell her, you are so creative. I didn't realize I was so creative. And I wish somebody supported my creativity. And you could do anything you want. You have it within you. And I love you. And I'm here for you. And I'm with you. Hmm. I think that would be it. But I had to believe it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I would have believed it at four years old. But I wish, now that I look back, God did send people into my life. I just didn't believe it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That that sentiment that goes with it, that you chose the four or five-year-old Amy mm-hmm. to talk to about it at a stage in her life when it probably could have made a huge difference had she believed what you just told her, as opposed to whatever it was she believed along the way. Right. Wow. I think the alcoholism is, and I go back, it really comes to this little child that's still trying to figure out life. Oh, and yeah. then as you start and you don't feel like you belong or you don't, you feel so unsupported, the drinking can bring all that in. Well, and especially growing up with a father who's an alcoholic and the, the turmoil and the chaos within the home environment mm-hmm. affects the little ones. Now we know how it affects them, but I, you know, who knew when we were that age that their behavior would have such a profound effect on the rest of our lives. Well, even me sober, I'm looking at my 21-year-old getting sober. Yeah. And having a lunch with him for two hours the other day, what was remarkable of him describing things, I thought I was even the best mom, because I I was the point that I gave everything too much to my children. You know, I didn't leave my children to drink. You know, I made sure they had the perfect meal every day, that I literally made the lunch every day, made them a beautiful breakfast. Was that a shock to you to hear him? Oh, when I heard his side where he grew up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, total shock. I'm like, (laughs) because that's what I'm saying. He's seeing something totally different than what I thought I was giving him. Yeah, isn't that something? But it's so nice that he could share it and that he felt safe enough because I'm at a better place 
that I'm sober and he sees the work that I did, so he feels safe and he sees where I am. Yeah, so he's been sober how long now? Only three weeks. Good for him. So I hope he keeps it up. What a gift that he was able to share that with you in that interval of sobriety. So the other three, have you done that with the other three at all? Well, yes. One has tried the program for one year, mm -hmm. he's left. Okay. Um, he's kind of like, I travel the world, yeah. and his father's the one that died of alcoholism, and he likes fine wine. Right. But now he's told me he's stopped, but he's not gonna do it AA way. My oldest one, he's fine, he doesn't agree, he thinks, why can't you? He doesn't get it's a disease yet. I noticed the one that just got sober on a phone conversation because after a football game, they're very close. And he stopped and he said, how was it? He goes, now you could go celebrate. And that's like, and so he was like, I don't do that. He does it in a different way now, but some of them get it. And the baby one who is a rapper now uh -huh. and told me, I was like, he told his brother, he goes, you know, if you know, he gets sober. Yeah. Daddy goes, he'll be the net, one of the best tight end, whatever, right. outside linebacker, yeah. you know, here and have the ability to go pro. And I go, and what about you who <laughs> smokes pot every day and drinks? And he goes, well, I'm a rapper and I'm white. And I'm like, Eminem is too. He's a rapper and white. Why can't He's you sober. get sober? And so if you think your brother can be the best he can be, why can't you be? <laughs> oh my gosh. They're all, but I feel like it flows down from us and yeah. we're their example and I pray for them. And, um, but I also know even as my other one, my 21 year old has gotten sober, I'm like, he does not want my story. And I remember I didn't want my mother's story. So I have to remember that. And I have to remember that too, because mm -hmm. I've got three adult children, the youngest of which is 30. And I have to remember anytime I see my 33 year old doing something and I want to give him advice, I have to remember the kind of advice that I wouldn't have listened to is the kind that I want to give him. Right. And I have to kind of stop and say, wait a second, this is a grown man I'm mm -hmm. talking to here. This is not a child anymore. Although I think that relationship is indelible it's still something we need to respect. Whatever they're doing is what they're doing, and God blesses them the same way he blesses us. Like Nolan says, they have their God too. They do, they do. <laughs> he tells they me do. they have their God, and I'm like, <gasps> and it, like I had to stop myself just having such a great lunch because I want him to get yeah. so much my way, and I'm like, he's not, I remember not wanting to do it my mom's way. That's right. And I didn't do it my mom's way. Right. And he's going to do it his way. Yeah, and God's will will out. You it know, will. It, it, will, it will prevail no matter what. And if we're good and we're okay, then hopefully let's pray we're their example, I believe. so. What a, what a wonderful sentiment to end on, Amy. Uh, this has been remarkable. I, I feel like I, I knew you just you know five minutes at a uh -huh. time in the meetings, but now I know you so much better. You've got a remarkable story. Uh -huh. And congratulations on all the gifts that you have uh, received as a result of being sober. I think that offers a lot of hope to other people out there. And also the tough things that you've got through just because you're sober. Mm -hmm. And I think you're a, a terrific model of someone working a good program. And I love you and I want to thank you again for doing this interview today. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. I'm glad we did this. Thank you so much. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Amy B., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to more than 85 interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, 
play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.